Bay, looking forward to the 20 man over the top rope battle royal. Every man for himself, Hulk Hogan. I'd be worried if I were you. A lot of people gunning for you, lonely at the top. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation suggested for the following World Wrestling Federation event. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. everyone and welcome to episode 129 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host Peter Winson and as you can tell from that music that just continues on and on because I like listening to it, it's the final time you would get to hear it for Saturday night's main event on NBC. This is the final episode of that iteration on April 27th, 1991. It was taped 12 days earlier in Omaha, Nebraska, a not not a place that I would have thought would have had had two different Saturday Night Main events, but the July of 1990 show was taped there, which featured the debut of the Texas Tornadoes. This is actually the first Saturday Night's Main event proper since October 1990, which I had to look up what was on that show. There was the Ultimate Warrior and the Legion of Doom against the three-man demolition team, which you think would be a bigger deal, but demolition by that point. I mean, and I've said it time and again. Axe really didn't give a crap. Randy Savage and Dusty Rhodes, which I should have known because it was 1990 and it was probably going to be on there. And Hulk Hogan and Tugboat defeated Rhythm and Blues. Entirely forgettable. But this one is a little bit more memorable, which may owe a little bit to the fact that it was as I said, the last one. And this is Saturday night's main event. The difference between this and the other main events that they did was the main event was one hour long. This was an hour and a half. And the show from which I pulled this video has the original commercials from a New York feed because one of the the local NBC affiliate was sort of pimping what they got coming up for... (laughs) for some investigative reporting. But before I get into all that, you can email, let me get in my plugs, you can email the show, greetingsmallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsmallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter at Pod. That is at Pod. You may be listening to this show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And this week on the feed on Monday, as per usual, we had the Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast dropping, looking at independent wrestling from the Pacific Northwest. PWO Retro, a couple of days ago, going back to 2013, a Wrestling with the Past episode with Will and Charles. And they were looking at steel cage matches, just kind of the concept as it's gone through in wrestling history. And obviously some of the matches that had taken place. I do recommend that you check all of that out. 
As for me, I don't have a whole lot going on in, other than my interminable job search, which feels like it's going to go on forever. Although I don't really want to go too much into that, because last weekend I got to go down to Long Island and see one of my nephews play baseball down there in Islip, New York. And I, I figured out one thing that I'm very good at, but it's no way I can actually monetize it. I'm very good at taking pictures at baseball games. Like, he was a catcher, and I was able to frame him actually, you know, blocking a pitch in the dirt and, you know, act, you know, get his, get his form, get his swing, like, making contact with the ball. Like, he's taking the swing, and the ball is about to hit the bat. Uh, I'm very good at that because I, I practice that at minor league baseball games. But there's no way I'm ever going to become a baseball photographer of any kind. I'm just doing it with a freaking phone but i know the rest of the family appreciated uh, some of the although the video that i took on my phone was not of very good quality so i recommended to them that you know, pretend like uh, you're watching it on the atari entertainment system from like 1983 atari 2600 something like that so coming back from ice slip it's a lot longer drive but this morning, as I am taping this segment on Tuesday, I got up and I looked out my beautiful new back door for which I can see everything, and I was horrified to see a turkey, although not the lar- far from the largest turkey that I've ever seen, but with three youngins alongside, just walking through my backyard. And this makes me very unhappy because I don't like a turkeys are assholes. I cannot stress this enough. I mean, what happens if I'm outside and I'm grilling chicken legs, as I was doing last night, and all of a sudden these turkeys decide to show up? I mean, I'm completely unarmed. Okay, I don't want to go down that road because I don't want to end up like that 50, 30 to 50 boars guy who on Twitter, which I'm also trying to limit the amount of time I spend scrolling Twitter on a daily basis because, let's face it, it is a friggin' cesspool. And I'm not even talking about the quote-unquote internet wrestling community. I'm talking about just overall, like the whole thing with Baltimore a week and a half ago. And the list goes on and on. It, it's not, not good for the soul, quite frankly. And I, I got a lot of other things to worry about, such as this Saturday Night's main event, which drew a 7.7 rating, which sounds actually pretty good. I mean, you think of what the ratings number is now, but of course things are very different, the landscape of cable TV. But you always have to consider what it is versus what's in that, how it did versus what's usually in that time slot, especially for something that is something of a special presentation. And 7.7 came in below what SNL was doing around that time, even in the reruns. But also... The NBC was starting to lose interest in the WWF for a variety of reasons. They had other priorities. A lot of it is put on NBA basketball, but I don't really see how that makes sense because it's not like they're airing NBA games at that point of the night. I mean, maybe it's, oh, we're going to focus more attention on this. I don't think this was costing them a ton of money. It had a lot to do with the Sergeant Slaughter Iraq angle, which you can trace right to Bob Costas, the sportscaster who refused to participate in WrestleMania 7 because he found it distasteful, and Costas would go and have a little little bit more of a war of words later on with Vince McMahon because Vince held the grudge against him. 
but Costas is very influential at NBC at that time, so who knows what he might have had to do it. And Dick Ebersol, I think, had kind of lost interest in the project by that point. Yeah, he was the head of NBC Sports, but now with the NBA, you know, he he is kind of thinking of different things. And you could see that for this, they, they may have had their mind elsewhere because all the banners and all the microphones were labeled the main event, even though this was Saturday night's main event. So I'm not sure if they put away the equipment and just like lost it. They couldn't find the banner or what the hell was going on. So this is the end of the run on NBC. And one of the differences between here in 91 and the early Saturday Night Main events from 85 to 87, such as the one that I covered last week from March of 1987, they only taped Saturday Night's Main event that night at the Joe Lewis Arena. They did not use it for anything else. They, I believe, had some dark matches, but did not do anything other than the what aired on NBC for the show. Here, they taped three episodes of Superstars in addition to the Saturday Night's main event, which they repurposed these matches for primetime wrestling over the next couple of weeks. Primetime wrestling was during the studio audience era here in April of 91. I actually watched the April 30th edition of Primetime. Vince is wearing... <laughs> One of his usual ridiculous outfits, but I was very disappointed in Bobby Heenan because he wasn't wearing his <laughs> Too Close for Comfort Ted Knight tribute where he's wearing some college or university. Instead, it just it was just a white sweatshirt that said China Club. Welcome to the China Club. It was a very interesting show, and that's beyond how every single commercial break had at least two ads for a 900 number for men to call in and to talk to women, some of which cost as much as $5 a minute. And I'm not exaggerating. There was probably, in this two-hour program, about 15 of those commercials. So I guess they knew the audience. But Heenan brought out a mannequin early in the show and dubbed it Vince McMannequin, and they were having fun with it. The Nasty Boys defaced it. Bret Hart did a little artwork during the show and had a run-in with the Nasty Boys at the end of the program. But the most interesting thing to me was the Ultimate Warrior, who we're actually going to see on this show facing off against Sergeant Slaughter in a Royal Rumble rematch. It, he has an interview where he, it is the absolute lowest key ultimate warrior that I've ever seen in my life, where he's talking to Vince about being trapped in the casket, which I covered on PWO Retro last week, but also Greetings from Allentown number 12, talking about that experience. And he's very, very serious. And I thought, wow, why couldn't this ultimate warrior character have come out a little bit more? Because he was actually starting to connect with me. So I, I would love it if these would appear on the WWE network at some point. But even if it's without the 900 number commercials, you can just imagine it in your head as they, as they go through it. Also watch the superstars from this weekend, although the video quality was not particularly good. Uh, this is in the middle of Andre being asked to being propositioned by every manager in the WWF. I'll get to which manager propositioned him on that week. That would lead to Earthquake attacking him when Jimmy Hart falsely claimed to have secured the services. But one thing that did not change from Saturday Night's Main Event early on is Vince McMahon is our play-by-play man as per usual, but he has his third different, or actually fourth different, color guy alongside in the macho man randy savage something of an evolved heel announcer 
for a very brief period after WrestleMania 7 until he's about to propose to Elizabeth and is just basically a full-blown baby face at that point. Here, he's still actively rooting against the Ultimate Warrior, has some things to say about Hulk Hogan. We do get Rowdy Roddy Piper, who was the third Saturday Night's Main Event color guy preceding Piper. He joins a little bit later on in the show. We also get a rematch from WrestleMania 7, the Mountie taking on Tito Santana. Hopefully this time they get a little bit more than 71 seconds or whatever it was. The Nasty Boys do the traditional first tag team title defense. And for some reason they have, are facing off against the Bushwhackers because they are they're the number one contenders. Okay, whatever you say. And Brett the Hitman Hart taking on the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase in what has to be categorized as i would love to have seen that feud something about like ted has to convert all of his money into stuffs a toonie down brett's throat that's how it gets started hey I'm, i'm just spitballing here sadly though that was not to be now one thing that this show does have in common with the joe lewis arena show from march of 87 that i covered last week is a 20 man over the top rope battle royal which is somewhat different than the one we saw with the Hogan-Andre hook last week. Not entirely sure what the hook is here, other than you have the world champion Hulk Hogan, as you did in that match, and the Intercontinental Champion is actually in this one, Mr. Perfect, along with 18 other guys. So we'll see how that shakes out. So with all that in mind, why don't we just jump right into the show? Luke Brock was the symbol of great base stealing. But today, I'm the greatest of all time. Thank you. That late April, early May time period is very busy in sports. You have the NBA playoffs going on, Stanley Cup playoffs as well, Major League Baseball is underway, even the NFL draft is just concluded, although it was actually held a week before this. But I had to play that because when it comes to athletes who might have made pretty good professional wrestlers, Ricky Henderson has to be on that list. I'm not sure he's talked about as somebody in that vein. I mean, Dennis Rodman, he seemed to fit right in at least the first year, but think of the promos that Ricky Henderson would have cut, it's like the self-aggrandizing stuff. I mean, he broke Lou Brock's stolen base record, which had stood for about 15 years years i think at that point it actually says with lou brock there lou brock is good but today i am the greatest of all time standing ovation because you know he was always a super over baby face in oakland that's why he kept returning to the territory time and again he get traded to get traded to toronto i'll just go right back to the oakland territory he was to oakland like buddy rose was to portland So we start after the initial opening of the show with the Macho Man and Vince McMahon that I played in the original intro at the top of this show. Savage is in the back with the Triangle of Error. I mean, excuse me, the Triangle of Terror because we have Colonel Mustafa joining the duo of General Adnan and Sergeant Slaughter. And Savage, as I said, he's a very different sort of announcer. He's not patriotic, so he's not quite at that level where he's on the USS Intrepid in 93. Apparently something happened between then and now 
where he would actually take pride in his country because he's he's hoping that Sergeant Slaughter will win the war against the warrior. It's a man who faces the ultimate warrior, and I'm hoping that you will be victorious in winning the war, just as you were at the Royal Rumble. <laughs> yeah. Stand at ease, macho man. A great American like you never has to stand at attention for Sergeant Slaughter. And you're right. I defeated that ultimate puke at the Royal Rumble for the World Wrestling federation championship however at wrestlemania 7 hogan may have won the battle but he didn't win the war because he learned that when he plays with sergeant slaughter he's playing with fire but tonight i'm not facing the immortal slime no i'm facing the ultimate puke and i will win the battle because I know what you're deathly afraid of, Ultimate Warrior. I've talked to Paul Bear, and I saw you in the funeral parlor. And I guess you could say it took your breath away. <laughs> you know what's a thing that I really love is heels being friendly to each other, whether it be locker room celebrations within the Jimmy Hart family or the Heenan family, or just the reference to two heels getting together and having a conversation. Like, what was the nature of these talks between Sergeant Slaughter and Paul Bearer? Like, is Paul Bearer the kind of guy who can actually just talk normal in a conversation? I have the kayfabe hat on for this one. So, I don't know. One thing that I did not notice, because I covered the wrestling challenge, which showed Hulk Hogan getting hit with the fireball, which they showed a clip of here. Hogan walking to his locker room, it said Hulkster on the door why would it say that instead of hulk hogan uh maybe i guess uh <laughs> you know they would have had to pay a little bit extra on the licensing and that's why stuff is starting to say hulkster rather than hulk because the word hulk you know you got to cut a check every time that appears but it is very important to scout your opponents so good thing that slaughter is you know watching that angle on the funeral parlor with the casket and three minutes and 46 seconds that the warrior was trapped in there so they go to gene oakland who is with the ultimate warrior who by far has the best hair of his career on this saturday night's main event yeah i have to admit he looks pretty damn hot. You know, I wish I could get my hair to look like that, but, you know, it gets all curly when it gets long. But the Warrior, one of the things I like about this Undertaker angle is, as I mentioned, he's a little bit more subdued and he's toned down sort of the weirdness that came before. I, Sergeant Slaughter, was born from the darkness that you fear. I have had to learn to live in the light of this normal universe and neither you, Sergeant Slaughter, nor you, Undertaker, has the seal to the fate of my destiny, the destiny of my warriors. As I lay in that closed casket, gasping for what might have been my final breath, my final thoughts, my final visions, were a vermin like you, Sergeant Slaughter, and of you, Undertaker. Tonight will be no vision of Royal Rumble. Tonight will be no mother of all battles. Right, Sergeant Slaughter, bring you the ultimate battle! 
crazy. I'm not an Ultimate Warrior guy at all, but for whatever reason, I like this particular version. The guy who's feuding with The Undertaker and is a little bit more serious about things. Sure, he's still got the tassels, he's still got the face paint, but there's something very, very different about him where now he's actually getting me to imagine what would he have been like had he stayed in the WWF through the end of 1991. Well, obviously, I think his ego and the whole contract thing was going to rear its ugly head at some point, but it's a shame. You know, maybe this would have led somewhere where I would have more positive memories of him, at least if he didn't give any speeches at any colleges. So we'll we'll just go right into the match. Sergeant Slaughter taking on the Ultimate Warrior. And Slaughter, as he comes out first, I notice his very odd hairline. Yes, it is receding, and I know that that sort of thing happens. But Slots also has this thing where he's got, like, the one dot of hair sort of towards the front where a lot of guys try to do, like, the comb back or the comb over, you know, try to, you know, cover something up. I know Rudy Giuliani used to do the comb over. Probably the best comb over that I've ever seen was Giuliani in the late 90s. But I don't know. It's like this huge puff at the front of Slaughter's head. I don't know what's going on. And by contrast, as I said, the Warriors get the best hair of his career. As he comes running out, it made me think about how... has Did the Ultimate Warrior ever trip on a camera cord running to the ring? And how pissed off would he have been if that had happened? As they get going, Sergeant Slaughter inexplicably goes to the top rope, and the first spot of the match is him getting slammed off the top, as if Slaughter had some sort of side bet with Ric Flair. Like, I bet I could do your slam off the top spot like in the first three seconds of a match. Like... Yeah, I'm just going to camp out up on the top rope. So he's bumping all over for the Ultimate Warrior, which is of the utmost importance because he's still very limited as a worker. But Slaughter is like an old guy doing this. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of Harley Race. God rest his soul, passed away a week ago. But he in 1988, he's in there against the Ultimate Warrior shortly after he had the injury with, the, with his abdomen and the table in Nashville from Saturday Night's main event, and then he has to go work the Warrior on house shows shortly thereafter, and just probably just doing the usual bumping around for him, even though he was in great pain. And Slaughter backs off and gets a shot to the eyes to transition as the Warrior ends up outside the ring, and Colonel Mustafa works him over very, very briefly. Think of those two guys as WWF champions who had a, one of them lost it to Hulk Hogan, and the other won it from Hulk Hogan. Kind of interesting to think of it that way, as Warrior is sent into the post head first. And again, Savage is so interesting as an announcer, particularly because even though he lost to the Ultimate Warrior fair and square, he's not going to just drop that thing immediately, and they're not going to pretend like there wasn't some animosity. Right there, Ultimate Warrior, how does it feel? I can't feel sorry for this guy, because when I look at him, I know that my career ended because of the Ultimate Warrior, and now, now he's on the mat, he's going uphill, yeah, this is an uphill battle against Sergeant Slaughter, yeah. It's a shame that Savage kind of changed into a pure babyface as time went along, and we didn't get this act because pushing back against Vince always, I thought, was the best dynamic. Granted, it was Jesse Ventura doing it, so he's got a bit of a head start because he's just a much better broadcaster than your Brunos or even your Pipers. But the fact that he's maintaining this anti-Ultimate Warrior stance, although when he was trapped in the casket, after about two minutes, he was like, eh, this thing's gone a little bit too far. He had a backbreaker 
by Sergeant Slaughter. So he is working the back, setting him up for the camel clutch because he can't use the Cobra clutch when he returns to the WWF because it is the million-dollar dream, so you can't have two guys with the same move. And he locks in a bear hug, which is broken fairly quickly by the warrior, but Slaughter then reapplies the hold. And he's doing the best he can. At least he's working the psychology of working on a body part with the warrior, and the back is probably the place to go with something like that. As he goes to a knee, the warrior does, in the bear hug, we now see Paul Bearer making his way out to ringside, and he's rolling a casket with the Ultimate Warrior logos on it, presumably the same casket as he was locked in previously because well it'd be very difficult to go out and get a second casket as i mentioned in episode 12 you can't just go to the casket shop and just buy one and then have it in your living room for as like a display piece or for something to like lie in you kind of have to have a death there are rules and regulations about that sort of thing so bearer is rolling it down and the warrior sees it and he he's hesitating Probably because Paul Bearer is such a weird dude <laughs> and like in looking at him. So I don't know if he's looking at Paul Bearer or looking at the casket as the warrior is hit from behind and he's not quite, he ends up on the outside of the ring. But the warrior, to his credit, he's not a stupid idiot like Shawn Michaels and isn't going to bump onto the casket like a dumbass and hurt your back and suffer a career-ending injury, coincidentally during the highest-drawing period in history, as this leads into the commercial break for NBC. We get an ad for a movie coming out, a lot of movie ads on these shows. FX2 starring Brian Dennehy, which, to be honest, kind of looks like crap, some sort of perfume by CoverGirl, which made me wonder why they were advertising on Saturday Night's main event. It almost seemed like a make-good sort of spot because this is targeting the wrong demographic, I do believe. And this, too, was something I have mentioned previously, an ad for the 91 Toyotas. And I never get tired of them talking about the features that are available in these cars from almost 30 years ago. A lot of valuable extras that can add up to a savings of $1,000, plus back-to-the-dealer incentives. I would have played the whole thing, but the first 20 seconds was just sound effects of the various things that they offer in that car. Air conditioning, intermittent wipers, stereo cassette. Oh, well, I am sold. Power windows and locks. Here's the thing, though, with power windows back in, like, 1991 cars. felt like those would break quite a bit. Like, you'd have to get, like, a new window regulator after three or four years to the point where I remember almost wanting to get a car without power windows with, like, the manual crank when I was looking for a car in the early 2000s, but it was something that really wasn't offered anymore. I'm just saying, installing a window regulator in your car is a real pain in the ass to the point where even an auto repair shop was like, don't bring your car here for that anymore. The last ad in this block is legendary New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath filling us in on what a sale is. It seems like every day somebody's having a sale. Well, the Wiz knows what a real sale is. It's when you lower your prices on everything. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be everything. I mean, you can put red peppers on sale at the supermarket for $1.99 a pound and have your yellow and orange peppers be $2.49 if you really want to do it that way. 
Oh yeah, we're back, but the Ultimate Warrior's not back in fact. This is a completely different person than I wrestled at WrestleMania 7. I'm wondering if I took it out of him, or The Undertaker did with that custom-built casket, which is out at ringside right now. This is a changed person. This is not the Ultimate Warrior of old. Wait a second, does that mean that the Macho Man Randy Savage was the first one to float that theory that there was a fake Ultimate Warrior and that the real one died at some point in the past? Because that seems to be what he's floating here, except he's a year earlier than what most people were doing i don't know he's a changed man come on and the warrior is doing his version of hulking up with three clotheslines and a shoulder block but now the casket opens at ringside and it is the undertaker and he looks very displeased i tweeted the other day that it looked like somebody had a case of the mondays because he's very unhappy he's got like these lines going diagonally from his eyes and he does the quick turn and the camera captures it just barely. It cut to a different angle to catch The Undertaker just turning his head 90 degrees really, really quickly. It's a really good effect that probably only works with The Undertaker and very few other characters in wrestling history. It took a while for The Ultimate Warrior to actually notice, the, you know, to actually turn his head correctly. But once that happens, now the beatdown can commence. And The Undertaker joins in with the Triangle of Error, I mean Triangle of Terror, because just like the Macho Man, he, he's not so much into America until the 93 Survivor Series. Sergeant Slaughter, continuing the assault on Ultimate Warrior. Here comes General Adnan, and The Undertaker stands before them all. The Undertaker coming into the ring. Purple stuff is in here as well. It's four on one. Come on, referee. What's going down? Look at this. The Undertaker. Oh yeah, they're gonna put the ultimate warrior in the casket and steal it for good. I like it. Wait a minute, on his way to the ring now. Here comes the Hulkster. Beautiful first time ever, a double casket stuffing on the main event. I like it. No, Hulk Hogan is raining house right now. The Undertaker will want full oh, look at that. Wait a minute, no effect. No effect on the Undertaker. Hit him as hard as he could with a championship belt in his hand. And the Undertaker just stood there. Sergeant Slaughter on his way out. That was indeed the first time that Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker collided on, at least on television. But I was very distracted because when they, they had the four-on-one going, General Adnan comes in. And the kicks that he's putting to the Warrior are so light that he made Kelly Kelly look like freaking Mitsuharu Misawa by comparison. I mean, what the hell, man? At least lay a little bit in. I guess he didn't have a problem with the warrior. <laughs> didn't want to, you know, take any liberties or... I don't know what the hell was going on. Hogan runs in because, you know, he's Warrior's special friend. And we're going to plant that seed for the SummerSlam main event. A belt shot to The Undertaker does nothing. He just kind of stands there. And he chases Slaughter out of the ring. Who Slaughter hit he hit Hogan with an axe handle. The, the, Hogan just kind of shrugged off. So Slaughter just beats it. And so now we have the one-on-one -on -one confrontation of the Ultimate Warrior and the Undertaker. Let's get that house show program going. And the Warrior is down. Undertaker goes for an elbow twice and completely misses on it. Shades of King Kong Bundy last week. Him trying to do that to Jake the Snake after that match. And two clotheslines by the warrior have no effect but then a third one where he gets a double running start knocks the undertaker back and he falls backwards over the top rope but lands on his feet it, the way he did it was particularly strange because it was so kind of slow and methodical kind of like 
all right, yeah, I see what you're doing. You're just going to keep hitting me. So I'm just going to back up slowly and fall over the top rope because I know how to land on my feet. Believe it, Undertaker, yeah, you better understand it. Water off the rope, again and again, he nails him. Undertaker's not moving. Who's this guy wrestling here, huh? Who is, what is going on? Warrior off the rope again, and yes! Undertaker finally over the top rope, but he lands on his feet. He's on his feet right there. Kudos to The Undertaker, though, for sticking the landing on that, because that's what makes the entire thing work. It's like he's an undead Brian Boitano, or something like that. Sticks the landing like Kerry Struck. (laughs) I don't know. Pat Patterson is out to break things up. He's not looking that fat, but he's wearing a vest that makes him kind of... Kind of reminds me of Sal Romano from Mad Men. I don't know why. Maybe it's the closeted gay thing. Who really knows? But setting up that program, The Ultimate Warrior and The Undertaker, which apparently I like a lot because it makes The Ultimate Warrior a lot more human. We got Hogan now interacting with The Undertaker and then keeping that Sergeant Slaughter thing going and planting the seed for the SummerSlam main event. So... It may not have been the greatest match in the world. Slaughter, as he always did, trying his ass off during this period in the heel roll. But we're planting a lot of seeds. So a lot was accomplished in this one match. This is never going to work. Hey, relax. Anybody can send them roses. Excuse me, we didn't know anything. Ian, what's this? Hi. <laughs> Did they really expect us to call them? I'm telling you. <laughs> Hello. So the way that commercial worked is two guys up in an office building see these two women down below at this pool area, I think it was, and they order two beers for them and put the phone number up on like seven giant placards, 555-2837. And they end up calling. They're like, oh, this is never going to work. So I, I apparently in 1991, you could get some pussy just by sending some Budweiser their way. <laughs> I guess the lesson is that fortune favors the bold, and you might as well take a shot down the field every now and then to use some football parlance. Another ad for the the Energizer Bunny comes in. I didn't make a note on what they were kind of parodying. It was no Lyle Alzado like there was last time. And Wendy's for the bacon mushroom milk, which is a pretty good burger. It was kind of making me hungry watching the ads on this show, and it was also on the primetime wrestling that I watched as well. Coors Light had a real sort of Latin flavor for their commercial. It's the right beer now. And then Nissan Sentra. Apparently Nissan had won some awards because they were more reliable than other cars were in the early 1990s. So up next, we get Gene Oakland in the back with the new WWF Tag Team Champions as of WrestleMania 7, the Nasty Boys, who immediately just go in and tell Oakland to shut up. The nasty boys may be nasty, baby, but at least we're not disgusting like the bushwhackers. Oh, yeah. You're grotesque 
ugly, and scummy, but they're not nasty. We're going to beat the crazy right out of you two monkeys and make you our pet nasty. Whoa! Yes! We're going to rip their stinking arms off and shove them up their nose because we're nasty. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm really glad that this match took place. Not because I love the Nasty Boys and the house band for this show, or because I have any particular love for the Bushwhackers, because I really don't. But the the promo here, because they got Roddy Piper there alongside, their old pal from Portland Wrestling in 1980, and they're just having a good time, and I actually rather enjoyed this. Gummy! What do you think? They're not bloody nasty! They're not bloody nasty! They're not bloody nasty! Maybe I only like the Bushwhackers when they're paired with Roddy Piper in some way, whether it be at Survivor Series 89 or Portland in 1980, although I do like sheep herder matches along the timeline of the 80s and the various territories, the ones that I've seen. And the reason why I'm glad that this match exists between the Nasty Boys and the Bushwhackers, it's like a collision of generations where you have the sheep herders as the territory brawling team that would go from place to place that, quite frankly, is kind of gross and it's kind of made that a central part of their gimmick. Although, that was not really as... They were more pure brawlers when they were the sheep herders. They, they get into more of the gross stuff when they become the bushwhackers. But you can draw a line between them and the Nasty Boys. And the Nasty Boys would be the version... The post... The version of the sheep herders slash bushwhackers in a post-territory milieu. I wanted to see if I could put that as pretentiously as possible. As the champs come out first, which uh, Jesse Ventura, thank God he's not here, so he can't get all offended about it. And Jimmy Hart's gimmick with the Nasty Boys is the motorcycle helmet, which I got to say, Jimmy Hart in that helmet is hysterical because he looks like Mike Dukakis in the tank from 88 i am glad that i can have a bushwhackers match here that i can assign some sort of meaning to a passing of the torch if you will from one generation of brawling tag team to another and we start with knobs and luke in the ring and as this thing got started i realized oh yeah this is the second most famous match of the summer involving these two although i guess it's still springtime when this is taped and airs because in the summer although I guess it's still technically spring because it was the middle of June, the Bushwhackers teamed up with Tugboat and the Nasty Boys teamed up with Earthquake in a six-man on Superstars, which I covered on a Primetime Wrestling episode that I covered, episode 44 of Green Smalltown. Do check that out in the archives where the Tugboat betrayed the Bushwhackers and the tears were flowing across America, were, were flooding rivers and lakes across this great land. The Nasty Boys are the people's choice, so says Macho Man Randy Savage. I, I just like the way Savage is putting things at this point. He doesn't sound nonsensical like he would later on, like around the time of WrestleMania 9, where he would just say things just to say them. 
And the Bushwhackers are in control very early, all four men in the ring. And they do get a reaction from the crowd. For all the crap that I've given the Bushwhackers for just being complete nonsense and not really all that funny, they are getting the crowd into it. And it's not like in that Saturday Night's Main Event way where you can tell that the audio is being, well, played with a little. You can see the, f- you gotta judge these by the way the fans are reacting opposite hard camera. Let that be your guide. As they get back in, Sags is Jerry Sags decides to preen very strangely towards the hard camera. I thought, well, that's very strange. I never really thought of him as a body guy. So Butch of the Bushwhackers does the same thing, but opposite hard camera. So clearly, this guy, despite having been a professional wrestler since the 60s, doesn't know how to work because he's facing away from the hard camera. But this allows Sags to sneak up from behind and attack him and gain an advantage. But Butch reverses an Irish whip and hits a knee to the gut. Luke gets in, tries for a pin, but it is only a two count because the save is made by Knobs. A battering ram knocks both nasty boys out of the ring. And the unorthodox style of the bushwhackers this is something that commentary like to talk about because it it, it was an easy subject to bring up but this exchange between vince and the macho man is pretty priceless well i got him figured out i feel that the bushwhackers are going to get beat here in about 10 seconds as soon as the nasty boys even getting nastier than they were before sigmund freud couldn't figure out the bushwhackers how can you about pavlov's dog vince mcmahon what do you got to say about that about him. Uh-huh. It's not something you'd get from Vince and Jesse, but it's hilarious nonetheless. As back inside, Luke gets Irish whip, but is kicked in the back of the head by knobs on the apron in the Bret Hart memorial spot. He's not fucking dead. The first time I ever used that drop was during the weird Harley race head in the clouds every time they would refer to him basically as dead. And just needed to make that point. As Luke gets worked over for a bit more, Nasties go for a pin, but Butch makes the save, which appears to be how they're just doing all pinfalls, is just saving the other guy as we get tagged. Butch and Knobs are now in, and uh, Butch is a house of fire, I have to say, but then he gets double teamed. Clothesline by Knobs gets a two count, and the referee is tied up with Jerry Sags as something of a spear by where Butch ends up on top of Knobs because Luke speared him in the back. It was kind of an interesting little spot, and Sags was extremely late in making the save on that to the point where the ref noticeably had to hesitate before accidentally making a three count. I mean, God knows, if we had had a title change to the Bushwhackers, I I don't know what the hell would have happened. This certainly would not have aired. We would have had another Rockers Heart Foundation situation. As we have Knobs and Butch in the ring now for the finish we have a twist on the old rick flair spot where he puts both of his feet up on the ropes after he just sort of scoops the legs here knobs does the same thing but instead of putting his feet on the ropes sags provides leverage by pushing against knobs's ass from the apron to provide more leverage and holding the shoulders down which to me looks more effective than just putting your feet on the ropes which people just sort of take at face value like oh he's gaining an unfair advantage so the torch has been passed to a new generation of grimy gross 
brawling tag teams, I guess, as the Nasty Boys def- successfully defend the WWF tag team titles with a win over the Bushwhackers on Saturday night's main event. But Bushwhackers have to get their heat back with the battering ram to clean house after the match and just sort of march around. I mean, this match was perfectly fine. I can't believe I'm saying that about a Bushwhackers match. But I think the Nasty Boys, they say styles make the match. I think the Nasty Boys were equipped to have a decent match with the Bushwhackers. So Boston with a one nothing lead now go on the power play. And on their last power play, remember in the second period, they were all over the Canadians, couldn't get one by Roy. If you look it up, Game 6 of that Bruins-Canadian series in 91 was actually on the night that this show aired on the 27th. Game 7 was two days later, which is where that goal by Cam Neely on Patrick Roy, which is scored from center ice, by the way, against the great Patrick Roy, who Cam Neely basically owned for his entire career, and Neely would get injured by Elf Samuelson less than two weeks later, and the Bruins would lose a golden opportunity at a Stanley Cup by losing to a team that had finished 10 points below them in the regular season. Gee, that sounds awfully familiar. Can't help but feel that that might happen again 28 years later, but in any event, that that kind of stuff will never get old. Cam Neely scoring on Patrick Roy. Another Bruins-Canadians thing, real quick, is they played every single season in the playoffs for nine straight years, from 84 through 92, and that's what happens when you have divisional playoffs so we go to gene oakland who is with paul bear and the undertaker and he kind of wants an explanation for why the undertaker was uh, making time with the triangle of error i mean triangle of terror and the undertaker well he this is during his period where he really hasn't come out of his shell but paul bear is going to speak for him oh death be not proud oakland on the contrary, death lay in the ultimate warrior's future. For the Undertaker and I have been saving box stops, and the ultimate warrior will be our biggest prize. He's coming for you, ultimate warrior, through forest, lawn, arena, and ring. The Undertaker will never stop, so give in, warrior. Take a look on the sunny side. <laughs> it's a cold, cruel world. And I will not rest until you, ultimate warrior, rest in peace. That is a little strange to hear in retrospect, considering that The Undertaker's undefeated streak at WrestleMania ended at 30 when The Ultimate Warrior returned to the fold, and then he passed away two days later. So he would rest in peace at around the same time that The Undertaker would rest, in that he would allow his shoulders to be pinned to the mat for a three-count, at a WrestleMania. So I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into that, but that is what I do on this show. As they go to a commercial break for a Rage in Harlem. I don't remember that movie at all. And for a second, I thought it was going to be an ad for Harlem Nights, but I think that movie came out a year before. Miller Genuine Draft Light. That's another beer that I don't think exists anymore. Kind of goes in all different directions. I mean, there, yeah, there's Miller Light and there's Miller Genuine Draft, but is there really a market for Miller Genuine Draft Light? I, I don't know. Nad for Honda with a bunch of tow trucks involved, kind of making the point that Hondas are more reliable, so you won't necessarily need these tow trucks. I thought it was odd imagery, though, to put in your car commercial but 
We have speaking of cars. If you watched wrestling in the '80s and into the early '90s, you've definitely seen ads for Castrol. Inside your smooth-running engine is a torture chamber, and under these grueling conditions, only one leading motor oil meets the world's toughest requirements for viscosity breakdown. Castrol, the only leading motor oil that provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. So use Castrol. Why make things tougher on your engine? Castrol, engineered for today's smaller cars. Totally serious, when I was 10, 11 years old, I thought viscosity and thermal breakdown was like the number one problem in all cars and that it was eventually going to happen and that there was very little we could do about it. Unless, of course, we used Castrol motor oil. This is kind of the extendo break that you would see on Saturday night's main event where it would be four minutes long ads for Meineke, Ikea, which kind of left me scratching my head. I didn't know that was around back then. Although with this being the New York area, I guess they, they must have gotten Ikea before everybody else. Ultra 94 gas from Sunoco and the NBC affiliate, NBC4, is going undercover in New York City restaurants. I don't know. I really don't want to know too much about what goes on because some of those places, you know that, you know, probably not going to pass every single health code. And then finally, an ad for the NBA playoffs airing on Sunday, April 28th, 1991. We got two games. The NBA playoffs continue on NBC. The Celtics battle the Pacers. The Bulls take on the Knicks. A playoff doubleheader Sunday. Jordan and the Bulls beat the Knicks 89-79 in Game 2 of that series. It was a three-game sweep. MJ had 26. Not the most aesthetically pleasing teams sometimes because it was very low scoring, but that's the way some of those Knicks teams were, although Pat Riley would not come on board until the following year. But a little bit more pleasing to the eye, I think, is the Pacers-Celtics game at the Boston Garden, which Indiana actually won to tie that series at 1, and you got... Chuck Person scoring 39 points. He was always kind of a thorn in the side of the Celtics during those years. I mean, 39, he hit 7 of 10 from three-point land. In an era where guys were not just gunning from long range, 130 to 118 for Indiana in that one. So a much higher scoring game. So up next, we have the 20-man over-the-top rope battle royal. But first, we have some promos as we get the uncensored version of Earthquake squashing Damien on from Superstars. This was also aired uncensored on Primetime Wrestling on the April 30th show that I was mentioning earlier. But on uh, <laughs> Superstars, they would cut to Sean Mooney and he would act all horrified. But Earthquake, he, some very interesting remarks. He He's not exactly the most remorseful dude. I found it cruel. I found it hard. Don't expect me to have any sympathy for Jake Roberts. I hate snakes. I hate pets of all kinds. And in this battle royal, I'm going to squash Jake Roberts just like his pet snake, Damien. And then I'm going to go through all the rest of the men. And then I'm going to finish 
fuck Hogan up! Come on, Earthquake. I've recently seen those pictures of you happily opening a present from your kids that was some sort of disco record with a smile on your face. You're not fooling me, okay? I think you would like at least my cat anyway, unless she threw up on you, which, you know, I'm just glad she's not by the mic making a lot of noise. Instead, she's sleeping on a Barnes & Noble bag that is there pretty much to keep any fur off the ottoman. So next, we get the rebuttal from Jake the Snake Roberts, and he is with the Macho Man. And Randy Savage. So, a very interesting combination here in 1991, the Savage interviewing Jake the Snake. And I have to say, I think the Macho Man may have offended Jake and set the stage for those events that would happen later. Oh, yeah. Jake the Snake Roberts, it seems to me like you've lost more than a friend. You've lost the symbol of your very being, right or wrong. Maybe you don't have the capacity to understand what I've lost. And it's obvious Earthquake has no idea of what I feel inside. But a child that has lost a puppy that got run over by a car, or a mother that lost a loved one or a child of her own, or somebody that you've laid next to all your life and shared every moment, every breath with that person. Yes, that's what I've lost. Now, there's two things that I could do. I could roll over and die, or I could present Mr. Earthquake with something a little bigger, a little better, a little meaner. Damien's big brother, Lucifer, the devil himself, is going to be all over you. Oh, yeah. Jake the Snake Roberts seldom strikes out. Oh, yeah. It does seem like the Macho Man was being a little flip about somebody's pet being killed publicly on television in front of a large audience. And I can see now why Jake would be pissed enough to, I don't know, invade his wedding reception and plant snakes and wedding gifts to basically just spook the whole thing. And this is the debut of Lucifer, so I guess I was wrong. Kerry Von Erich, not the only person to debut on Saturday Night's Made Event. We also have Lucifer the Snake, because Damien was only killed on the Superstars edition this current, the same weekend that this would have aired. But Lucifer definitely... Indicative of a slow heel turn for Jake the Snake. He he was not doing anything heelish per se, but the name is kind of planting a seed. Now, we go into this Battle Royal, and we, we can't quit get to the Battle Royal without hearing from the World Heavyweight Champion Hulk Hogan first. As far as me and all my Hulkamaniacs go, this Battle Royal is nothing but another test, brother. What you got to realize right now is that we're in a war mode, brother. When I step in that Battle Royal, I know I have no friends. I'm going to see red. I'm going to look at each and every man in there like he's the enemy. And if something happened that I was to get dumped out, crump my ankle or a shoulder, I'd still be ready for combat, brother because I'm getting through this battle royal alive. I got one thing on my mind after that. That's Sergeant Slaughter, and I'm ready to play by his rules, dude. Let us not forget that Hulk Hogan was billing himself as a sort of new version of himself, a Hulk Hogan for the 90s, and this little mini attitude era that wasn't called that because I'm just retroactively assigning it based on the angles that were being run. But I was very distracted by something in the background, which was a USA satin jacket that I don't know where that came from. I've never seen that before. But I kind of want to know who that belongs to. Is that like some sort of U.S. Express thing that was just sort of left over? Who really knows? So we go to this battle royal, and quite frankly, I don't think I can do play-by-play for another battle royal. I think I'm going to have to call in some sort of reserves. I mean, because there's so much going on. 
that you need a second person to really discuss what is going on. So, hmm, what could I possibly do? Our 20 men in this match are Hulk Hogan, Earthquake, Jake Roberts, Tugboat, Greg Valentine, Paul Roma, Hercules, Mr. Perfect, Pat Tanaka, Kato, Warlord, Barbarian, Texas Tornado, Big Boss Man, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Haku, British Bulldog, and Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And and Keithy, are you there? I am, yes. Oh, well, I, I am so glad to have you here because you've been talking about this Battle Royal for two and wow. a half years, asking me to cover it in some form. Now, why does why this particular Battle Royal from Saturday Night's main event as opposed to, I don't know, any other Battle Royal? I mean, part of it is that this is probably the first Saturday night's main event that I watched live. Because <laughs> it's, all, it's all over on NBC after this. Right. Well, I mean, I had seen some of the other ones, you know, as they recorded previously on tape. But I think what was special about this is that, you know, 1991 around that time was when I would kind of sneak downstairs on Saturday night to watch Saturday Night Live. And I think that not realizing that this was a main event night, I went downstairs and I all of a sudden to go watch, you know, Dana Carvey and Mike Myers. And next thing you know, I see Ultimate Warrior and Sergeant Slaughter and I got all excited. So this is just this is one of those shows that just holds a special place in my heart because it was one of the first ones I ever watched live. Well, let's 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 be honest here. You were actually watching SNL for Ellen Cleghorn and A. Whitney Brown. Right? We, we all know that what you were in it for. That ninety ninety one season before, before the cast got a little too big, but we have a pretty big cast for this bell row. As I said, I you know so the twenty the twenty names, a lot of big names. You have the Intercontinental Champion, Mister Perfect. You have the World Heavyweight Champion, Hulk Hogan. Yes. And uh, tag team champions have another match on this show, so so they're not in there. But it would have been nice to have the nasty quite, quite a few Hall of Famers, but not nearly enough Hall of Famers. Well. You know, I would love to do a death toll of this, but I'm not sure I can count that high. No. Uh, un- unfortunately. Actually, you know what? M- maybe maybe I should just underline as I go through here. All right. He's dead. He's dead. It's like, okay, the first line here, not as bad as I thought, but as no. as we get deeper, it's going to get uh it's going to get really sad. All right. I'm up uh, I mean, more. yeah, we're definitely I think we're probably we're definitely more than half, I feel like. I mean, oh. We're only we're only at seven. We have Earthquake, Hercules, Mr. Perfect, Texas Tornado, Big Boss Man, British Bulldog, and Jimmy Snuka. Now yeah. you, you 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 think Marty Jannetty might be dead because you know of all the weird stuff that's happened with him, but absolutely not. Jake Roberts probably could have died nine different times. Jim Duggan. <laughs> Jim Duggan has held on for dear life by you know just. I don't know the luck of Sean Mooney's podcast. Maybe I don't know. Well, he's 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 a fighter, I guess. But uh, in in looking at this, uh, obviously the the young twelve or I was about to turn twelve year old fan was picking Hulk Hogan in this because Hulk Hogan generally did not lose, even though he lost the Battle Royal in '87 and he also lost the Genius in '89. Yeah, Randy Savage for his part is picking. The earthquake. I want. I kind of want to say earthquake's name the way Dino Bravo says it, but I can never get it out of my mouth correctly. <laughs> Earth, earthquake. The earthquake. Earthquake. 
You, just have, you don't have the Quebecois accent. You have to get that. Apparently, I don't. But I'm assuming, as a young fan, you were you were picking Hogan, or were you like a weirdo and were like, "Yeah, I'm picking uh, Pat Tanaka to win this thing." I mean, I would I would like to say that I picked the winner of this battle royal because I was a Mr. Perfect fan. I never liked Hulk Hogan. I always loved the heels. Heels are far more interesting than faces. Um, but in reality, I think my pick for this and who I hoped was actually Jake the Snake. I mean, at the height of Jake the Snake, this was the height of my obsession, you know, with Jake the Snake, so to speak. I loved everything that he did, everything that he was doing at the time. And I was a fan I'm still a fan of his, you know, but yeah, at that time, definitely, I wanted Jake the Snake. Plus, he was introducing, you know, a new companion, so to speak. Yeah, that was interesting how he had that snake ready to go, and the uh, the, the actual Superstars episode the, with that match aired on that same day. So, in theory, if your market showed Superstars on Sunday, he's introducing a new snake while the old one has not been killed off yet on your local television. <laughs> Although I guess I guess Superstars would have aired on Saturday in mo- most places. So, all, I can, all I can think of is didn't, didn't like every time they would show that, Mean Gene would just go chilling. chilling. Oh, they would they would cut to the studio, and in the Superstars that I watched, they cut to Mooney. Who had like the greatest facial reactions to it? It's just the total grimace of. Well, like he's in the event center and it's like he's waiting for his cue to throw it to the bushwhackers to talk about their match against the Rougeos or something like that. It just looks no perfectly normal. But on this show, it's completely uncensored, as I said earlier, which is is, is a little strange. I knew at some point they showed it all the way through. And now I remember it was this. So, it's... What are you, where are you at? Like some sort of uh, truck stop? Uh, no, my, it's just a truck drove by my house. I apologize. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm going to truck stop. <laughs> we talked about this last week, how... One of my favorite things is just dudes milling around. And yes. A battle royal, like Axe giving the ovation for Andre as he comes into the ring. Here at the beginning, did you notice that Marty Jannetty didn't have a dance partner and he was just kind of wandering around aimlessly like a complete a-hole? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. This is why you don't, you know, that, that's why you're supposed to have a 20-man battle royal so that everybody can kind of pair off like the high school dance. But Marty, he's too busy looking for his daughter or something, I guess. I, I don't know. Oh, bad form. I Although, he didn't get in there and mix it up, at the very least. He didn't hide under the ring. Right. He didn't pull a uh, road dog. Yeah. (laughs) Or a, uh, or, no, who was it that, who did it at the Rumble? Was it the, uh... I think literally everybody on the roster has done it. They did it two freaking times at WrestleMania 35 in Battle Royals. And it's like, who the hell is deciding, okay... The whole finish, and pardon my language for this, earmuffs, children, that finish is completely fucked out, all right? You've got to stop doing it. You can't do it for, like, two more years. That is that is the rule that I make. It's, it, it's, it's just no good anymore. I mean, just give me classic Battle Royal stuff like, what's Kerry Von Erich's problem with Pat Tanaka? And then I realized that Kerry's probably so beat up. 
Kabuki, and it's 1982. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, I do, I, I do agree that. This needed to be a, I mean, this Battle Royal is only 12 minutes and 30 seconds, which is funny that Greg Valentine's in it because he's not even warmed up yet. Oh. But, uh, I mean, it, it, this pretty much, this was definitely a good flow of a Battle Royal. I mean, this, I think it, it hit all the tropes that needed to be. I think it didn't really, you know, like you said, Perfect didn't hide out under the ring, which was great. They didn't do too many spots where, you know, People were going out underneath the second rope or under the bottom rope and then coming back in. I mean, you know, Hogan didn't pull his usual antics of trying to pull somebody out. I mean, it definitely, it made a good, they did they made great use of their time for a Saturday night's main event. Well, Hogan did do a couple of things, although he actually had, when he got eliminated by the tugboat in an action that must have broken hearts across America. But Hogan eliminated the warlord. Which he did in every friggin' battle royal that those two guys were ever in. They had this secret under the radar feud. 89 Rumble, 90 yep. Rumble, this. Probably the. Well, I don't think Hogan was at the Raw Albert Hall, along with the one that the Bulldog won. 92 Royal Rumble, him and well, Sid no, Justice eliminate Warlord. Well, no wonder that, you know, Warlord was always trying to get his, his win back at the Nassau Coliseum in that you know, infamous world title match. The, the, one, the one time, yes. The one time. What I thought was interesting about watching this uh, again recently is the, is was Tugboat trying to you know fan the flames of Bruce Pritchard's idea that he was going to be uh, what was he going to be like Turncoat Thomas or he was going to be Sheik Tugboat Sheik Tugboat like how amazing would have been if it <laughs> that would have been your main event for WrestleMania Seven, folks Sheik. <laughs> I love the idea of the uh, evil turncoat Iraqi naval officer. Yes. <laughs> if there's anything that Iraq is known for, it's their it's their navy. I think what it you know Sheik tugboat would have been great, but I mean, what if he was like you know Rear Admiral tugboat? You know, they gave him some kind of a you know some kind of an actual you know ranking military ranking in the navy. You know, that would have been amazing. Well, if they had given him the name Rear Admiral, all that we would have gotten was like Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin jokes for the entire time. Like, oh, he 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 came up through the Terry Garvin School of Self Defense. Like, all right, we we already heard all those jokes with Lombardi two years ago. I'm okay with. Gorilla. Did you did you notice Snooka was wearing boots here? He was wearing boots against the Undertaker at WrestleMania. Yeah, I think it was I think it was shortly after I think it was shortly after his match with uh, Rude. I think at WrestleMania that he started wearing boots. Uh, WrestleMania six. And Haku Haku threw him out, so the 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 Pacific Island guys didn't get along. So Tonga picks one up over Fiji. Uh, I know I like the see it's it's the little moments. Okay. It's yes. a little different. I, the little things like Kerry Von Erich saving Jake when he when he's over on the ropes are like, boy, those drug guys, they really stick together. <laughs> Hogan and Valentine both laying elbows out on perfect. It's weird seeing Hulk Hogan and Greg Valentine double teaming somebody. So this is like literally the only situation that you would actually see something like that. Not to mention is this the only time the Warlord ever got one over on the British Bulldog? Because he eliminates him, and I don't think that he ever won a one-on-one match. Certainly not I, on TV. No, definitely not on television. And I don't think yeah, – you might be right. This might 
be the only time. I mean, you know, Waller definitely was not winning any any favors in that feud at all between the the full Nelson and the and the and the Poo Slam. I love the, the greatest debate in wrestling history that ultimately means nothing. Which Bulldog versus Warlord pay-per-view match do you like better, WrestleMania 7 or this Tuesday in Texas? Like, it, it, it's completely friggin' meaningless. Yeah. I'm on Tuesday in Texas. Where do you stand? I think uh, Tuesday in Texas. I mean, it's the you know the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. I mean, <laughs> Gorilla would bring that out for like these lower mid card matches. <laughs> it's like this iconic thing that's replayed from WrestleMania three. <laughs> I know, seriously, it's like WrestleMania three. You literally have the, <laughs> the the irresistible force and the immovable object, and fast forward a few years later, it's the Bulldog and Warlord. <laughs> like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> But to your point about Tugboat, there may have been some foreshadowing with him and Earthquake because he actually saves Earthquake yeah. before, before the whole thing with Hogan. But well, this thing in the middle, when Jake is kind of a sore loser and he throws the snake in, which I think he did when he got eliminated from every Battle Royal in history. He's yeah. just for very good reasons, though, because if somebody killed his pet, I mean, this is clearly why he turned to the dark side. But they go. They stop for commercial in the middle of this for for Wendy's, Eagle Potato Chips, Nissan, and Roy mm-hmm. Rogers Steak and Cheese. You ever go to Roy Rogers out on uh, the rest area on the Mass Pike? No. Twenty eight back in the day. It was no. okay. I mean, the closest, the closest I've come to those chain restaurants is I think on the on the way back from uh, or the way down, I believe, to the Outer Banks. We I, I stopped at a an Arby's and I had an Arby's and. That did not sit well with me. I think I made it halfway through Delaware before I had to pull over again. So. Well, that's well, that's Arby's for you. That'll happen. Now a word from our sponsor, Arby's. Oh, what the hell? So we have the meats. Earthquake gets his arm stuck in the rope during his elimination spot, so that yeah. takes a half a star off the match. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, tugboat getting the rub, and then Shawn Michaels eliminating tugboat. Yeah, I think Hogan is pissed at Shawn Michaels for years after this because he perceived, perhaps incorrectly, that Shawn Michaels in the '91 Battle Royal on Saturday Night's Main Event was trying to steal his heat, and Hogan ain't gonna stand for that. So when 2005 SummerSlam or whatever year it was that rolls around. Sean's Sean's gonna lay down for the one two three and he's gonna take the leg drop. Listen, listen, brother. Nobody nobody steals Hogan's heat, brother. All right. Okay, but this this now this now brings us to the thing that we've talked about for quite some time: the elimination of Hercules. <laughs> the greatest elimination since since, I mean, since Bushwhacker Luke in the '91 Royal Rumble, maybe. <laughs> Well, here's the thing, and I don't want, you know, in the immortal words of Ric Flair, I I actually don't want to burst that bubble you've been living in, big man, because it is an optical illusion of what happens, because when you look at it and you take it at face value, Hercules runs from the center of the ring over the top rope, basically eliminating himself, like... Somebody took a shit in the middle of the ring, and Hercules is running away from it. Yes. What you can't see until the camera kind of shows like eight seconds later is he was propelled by the big boss man. Probably not hard enough, though. 
And Hercules kind of hesitated and then just kind of ran towards the ropes, which made it look like he was committing suicide by throwing himself over the top rope. Now, listen, I have prepared. Okay. If you excuse me for a moment, let me get my notes. I have prepared my rebuttal for that. And I want to say that that is horseshit, part of my French. I have watched that several times. And... You are correct. The big boss man appeared to be giving an Irish whip to Hercules. However, the gas ran out on Hercules about halfway to the midpoint of the ring. And then all of a sudden he went, oh, and he forgot that he was supposed to get propelled over the rope. So he just proceeded to, I don't know, hit a nitrous burst and then immediately jumped over the rope. It was the greatest elimination much pain landing. I am sticking with my story that it was a prepared, planned event. The moon landing was fake, as well as Hercules getting thrown out of the ring by the big boss man. You know, it, it does look very much like that. I was going to make the argument that Haku actually does more of a toss himself out of the ring thing a little <laughs> bit later on because yeah. he kind. Of, it's one of those deals where. He's not close enough to the ropes, so he's got to do this weird, like, momentum thing and just kind of yeah. throw himself over. But it, either one of them on their face are, are, are funny, as opposed to somebody like the Big Boss Man, who once again just goes out at 150%, like my <laughs> freshman football coach did, yeah. as he used to say, like I mentioned before. He, he always has, like, the weirdest eliminations where, like, he catches his neck on the ropes or he goes over at, like, 100 miles an hour. It's like, yeah. you don't really expect the 310-pound guy to be doing that. He pulled the Vince McMahon corporate uh, corporate battle royal exit maneuver. I mean, <laughs> he, he, he basically gave himself a hot shot. <laughs> Now, our final four for this one, and I don't know what odds you would have gotten on, like, a parlay to pick these four guys. You know, like, so, sort of like four-spot Kino. You know, we know a guy who's very good at that. Yes. Uh, Mr. Perfect, Greg Valentine. In 1991, Greg Valentine. Shawn Michaels, still in a tag team. and I, You know how much I love tag team guys being in these things at the end. And the Barbarian. And Shawn looked really good in this match. And you know I'm not prone to say nice things about Shawn Michaels, but uh, he looked he looked quite good. Perfect and Barbarian, both Bobby Heenan guys, although you never think of them as being like, oh, yeah, they're both in the Heenan family at the same time. You never think of them associating with each other. You know what's really cool? If you look at it, in this Battle Royal, not only did we have the Powers of Pain, we had the proto uh, faces of fear. Like, that's pretty kind of, that's pretty cool to think of that, you know, actually, if you go back and look through this, you have several tag teams that ended up coming together throughout the years. I mean, you had, you know, you had Tugboat and Earthquake, you had uh, Haku and the Barbarian, um, you know, you had... That might be it. That might be it. That I'm looking at it now. But I mean, that's kind of pretty cool to think of that they had, you know, two. Of the, it would have been awesome if we had like, uh, you know, if the boss man, if somehow we could have, we could have squeezed the one man gang appearance in this or a team or, or even better yet, like if we could have gotten like Ken Shamrock just to make an appearance as just some, you know, the local jobber that got put in for this match, and then you can have Ken Shamrock and the boss man from 1999 Corporation. <laughs> Oh, I, I thought you were going to have time travelers or or uh, Steve Steve Blackman with his malaria or whatever he had for much of the '90s that kept him out. That would have been amazing. If we could now. Try. I he- I hesitate 
to bring this up because yes. this is not the most pleasant subject to discuss. Did you notice the weird bulge in Perfect's uh, uh, crotchal region? I mean, he, he, does he not have that every time he wrestles? I mean, go back and look at check the tape. That guy has consistently had friction boner for his entire run, at least in the WWF. I mean, I, I have to go back and look at the tape from WCW days. West Texas Rednecks. I don't know if they're in there, but I mean, he pretty much had a friction boner the entire time. It, it's very prevalent in this. It's very prevalent in the match with Bret Hart at SummerSlam. Um, it's yeah. And but speaking of bulges, did you notice Greg Valentine grabbing like Barbarian's trunk, chunk, junk? Excuse me, junk. While he's trying to get him out. I mean, we had to get a little friendly with Barbarian there. I mean, you know. Well, you know, he's he, he's a veteran. He can get away with that sort of thing. And Valentine, the thing that I liked is that Valentine, uh, he, he's there at the end. It's like probably the most memorable babyface thing that he did. Maybe, uh, well, I guess he proved himself in the 91 Royal Rumble since he was in there for 20-something minutes or whatever it was. I, I love that we got that nice chop battle in the corner with Valentine yeah. perfect. It would have been great. It would have been great if we had Monsoon say something about this youngster, Greg Valentine. It just the, the way he was going, it just it would have been classic growing up. This youngster in here getting hit, getting in his getting in his licks against the Intercontinental Champion. Well, we ne- we never got we never got Gorilla on Saturday Night's main event, and we never got Perfect versus Valentine. That would have been kind of a fun match for 1991. I, I was kind of yeah, like that would have been a great like house show circuit to have. I mean, what was what was yeah, like what was perfect at this point? Was he just mixing it up with Bulldog and preparing for you know preparing for Bret Hart? I mean, that would have been a great little change of pace if he you know give Greg Valentine something to do. I mean, you have the whole backstory of Greg Valentine being one of the most prolific Intercontinental Champions of all time. You know, having this new recent babyface turn and you know going up against the guy is who could be as you know, sleazy as Mr. Perfect. I mean, that would have been a great little house show circuit. They could yeah, have. you had you had Bulldog facing him on house shows because I went to the Boston Garden show the week, the Saturday before this. Yeah. So that that's that seemed to be the the match, and I liked the finish here where they're kind of yeah. both you know going over at the same time. Perfect manages to kind of hold on. The only thing kind of detracting from it is. Why did Heenan wear like his shittiest manager jacket for this? Like like the beige. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to like hang out at some seedy lounge afterwards. But in fact, they probably were. I mean, they were in Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, I don't know how many highfalutin establishments. Although I guess Warren Buffett's got to go somewhere, right? Well, shout out to all the Omaha, Nebraska fans. Well, Omaha is hosted two separate Saturday Night Main events, but they got them after the show kind of stopped mattering, like the second half of 1990, and then this one. That's nice. That's lovely. Mr. Perfect, victorious in this battle royal. Everybody sort of thought, oh, well, he should have won the Royal Rumble in 90 or perhaps 91. Uh, 90 seems to be the more common year, but he's – victorious here and i have i have no issue with how this got set up because he is the intercontinental champion and he, he, it's not his fault that he got hurt and that his career effectively ended by the end of the summer if, so, if i can if i can can i t- can i share you with you a mr perfect story real quick okay real quick okay in 1993 while I was at uh, my confirmation training or whatever that we had to go to the week, the day we 
had to go to confirmation something. Um, our good friend Chris, who you and I both know very well, we made a bet, and I said to Chris, Mr. Perfect is going to win the 1993 Royal Rumble. And he goes, what are you willing to put up? I said, if Mr. Perfect does not win the 1993 Royal Rumble, I will stop watching wrestling for the rest of my life. Uh-oh. So, to this day, I have not honored that bet. <laughs> well, that's okay. 93 seems like the big year for Welch bets because I'm still pissed off at this kid, Scott Stella, who bet me five bucks the Phoenix Suns would beat the Chicago Bulls in the 93 NBA Finals. And I have not been made whole on that. And given that I'm not working at this time and they haven't cleared my unemployment, I could really use that $5 right about now. I could buy a biggie bag with that. Down at Wendy's, because God knows there's been enough Wendy's ads on this particular video of Saturday Night's Main Event that I've been watching. I'm really craving a bacon mushroom melt, even though I don't carry it anymore. But you got any final thoughts, 30 seconds on on this Battle Royal? It's one of my favorites of all time. I'm not going to ever give that up. I love the Jake the Snake Snake bit. I love I love Hulk Hogan and Tugboat mixing it up. I love I love I love Hercules just diving over the top rope because he missed his mark. I love it. It's one of my, it's probably I will for the rest of my life I will watch this paper I will watch the Saturday Night's Main event and I will fast forward to this battle royal and I will just sit with a big smile on my face because it is one of the best. I love that Mr. Perfect won it. I love that he looked exhausted at the end of it. Exhausted because he got his he got his Tits lit for 12 minutes and 30 seconds. I love it. It's the greatest, and everybody should just immediately go to the network and watch it now. God, God bless, the, God bless the mighty Hercules, because with Axe no longer around, somebody needed to be the king of not giving a crap anymore. So the torch at some point was passed from from Axe to Hercules in the fall of 1990. But Keith, thank you for joining me on to discuss this Battle Royal and keeping me from having to do a play-by-play. Thank you. I'm not sure why Keithy sounded like Bubba Bowie when he talks on the Howard Stern show. It had sort of that effect. I mean, it's something to work on for the future. They go into the ad break on Saturday night's main event. And the Michael Keaton movie, One Good Cop. If you're wondering what he did between Batman and Batman Returns in 90 and 91, it was the movie One Good Cop and Pacific Heights. Uh, not the greatest follow-ups for Michael Keaton's career, Just, just my opinion a Honda commercial that has a woman at the very beginning that looks an awful lot like Jennifer Grey. I don't think she was reduced to doing background woman in ads like that yet, but uh, I don't know what was going on. And then Fritos, where all the kids in high school are eating it. Confession, I love a lot of Frito-Lay products. I do not like Fritos because there are many other corn chips that pack a lot more flavor. But this eternity for men cologne commercial just it's it's an extremely screwed up relationship between a man and a woman that is displayed i don't know where i end and you begin sometimes i feel i don't exist don't ask me to stop you you're free to leave but remember you'll be in another room somewhere else with someone else and when you're touching her i'll be touching her i am you yes we're one and now there's nothing left between us Now your gift with any $30 Eternity for Men purchase at Macy's.
Well, this is the early 90s, so AIDS is part of the public consciousness and the whole, well, every person that you have sex with, you're having sex with every person that they've had sex with. Now, I don't know if that applies to perfumes and colognes necessarily, but it seems to be the message that they're trying to get across. So up next, we have Brett the Hitman Hart starting finally singles push number five or six, depending on your accounting methodology, facing off against the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Million Dollar Belt apparently not on the line since they don't mention it. And finally, we're going to get a payoff for the end of that match at the 1990 Survivor Series where Brett, having had his brother pass away the previous day, might have been a couple of days before that, but Brett wrestled and he ended up losing to Ted DiBiase in a pretty good one-on-one at the end of that match. I, I always enjoy that in the Survivor Series when you would get down to the final one-on-one and it would sort of be an extended five or six minute match to kind of stand off on his own. But first, before we get into the bout, we're going to hear from the Million Dollar Man and his new manager, the Sensational Sherry, who are sporting the black and gold, which uh, <laughs> I definitely support. And Ted has a little bit of advice for Bret Hart. Bret the Hitman Hart, everybody knows that the World Wrestling Federation, you've climbed the ladder by being very courageous and having a lot of heart. But there's one thing, Bret Hart, that takes you places a lot faster than having heart and having courage. Sherry, tell him what it is. Brett the Hitman Hart, just remember one thing. Money is not everything, but money is the only thing. And frankly, the million dollar man has more money than you will ever have in your life. And that makes him a better man. (laughs) Their advice for Brett to just take the money certainly would have changed wrestling history if he had made the jump to WCW in 1996. Although, quite frankly, it would have turned out the exact same way as when he jumped approximately a year later. He just would have been a guy who was at the tippy top of WCW being held down somewhat and would have been like the fourth or fifth guy in the NWO which might not have been the best use of his talents might have been one of those you know fight against the NWO guys but you know I just really kind of wanted to throw anybody who was somewhat marketable into there and the biggest surprise of WCW and this is as far as I'll go on this topic is when they got Bret Hart and the fact that they just decided to do nothing with regard to making inroads into Canada. That was the number one thing that I thought was going to happen, is that WCW was going to become the top promotion in Canada. But I certainly underestimated the roots that the WWF had established there. So Rowdy Roddy Roddy Piper is on color commentary for this match, which makes sense considering he's feuding with Ted DiBiase and having matches with him on house shows. It's something of an unusual finish in that Roddy Piper was losing, but because he did not lose via pinfall or submission, and this happened at the show that I went to at the Boston Garden a week before this on April 20th, that they would the, ref, the referee would stop the match due to injury to Piper's leg as he was carrying around that crutch and in the end of the interview, Ted said that he had a present for Brett, which was another crutch, just like the, the one that Piper had, who he later said that he has now thrown that away because he is wrestling. Sherry's hair is very interesting, sort of a Bride of Frankenstein-esque quality to it. 
And as we get going, Ted controls, but Brett reverses an Irish whip, hits two clotheslines, and then a third one to send DiBiase over the top and onto the floor. A slingshot plancha by Brett. So he's clearly out to impress anybody who might be watching. I mean, you got to get noticed somehow, and this is the singles push that is going to count. And Sherry, once they're back inside, Sherry tries to trip Brett, who then gets out of the way when Ted goes for the knee as he's kind of yelling at Sherry, who's down on the floor, a two-count with the O'Connor roll by Brett. and But then he gets caught with a hot shot by the million-dollar man, who then follows up with a pile driver, Bret Hart's finishing move from his earlier singles pushes that he really wasn't using anymore. As Bret avoids a body slam and gets behind Ted and goes for another O'Connor roll, but Ted kind of ducks when they approach the ropes, and Brett just kind of goes flying out onto the floor. Does not hit the guardrail, a spot that the hitman liked to do, because he can't take that chance that he's going to bust up his sternum like he did in 89 against Dino Bravo, because this is going to count, okay? He's going next stop, Intercontinental title, although actually he was wrestling the Barbarian on house show matches, so it's kind of a slow build. As Brett's out on the floor, we get a cheap shot from Sherry, who's such a good manager i don't think there's a better ringside female manager ever because of the credibility she had with laying in those shots and even the macho man is vouching briefly for sherry's power i mean he remembers yeah they had kind of a bad ending but he he got a lot of help from her over the years as brett does the corner turnbuckle bump where he goes in face first as fast as he possibly can dibiase then locks in the million dollar dream Brett quickly backs him up into the corner. So that's how he breaks that one. He doesn't walk the turnbuckles like it's Survivor Series 96. As DiBiase goes up to the second rope, goes for an axe handle, but it's hit with a shot to the gut while coming down. So Brett goes to work with inverted atomic drop, a back elbow, pinfall attempt gets two, Russian leg sweep gets two, the side backbreaker. So, you know, your usual five moves of doom. An elbow off the second rope gets a two count. Is complaining about a slow count. Brett is to the referee Earl Hebner. Luckily, that would be the biggest complaint Brett would ever have for Earl Hebner in any match. Am I right? As Sherry grabs the leg of the hitman again, so Brett kind of goes outside. DiBiase is out after him. And this allows this Roddy Piper now leaves the broadcast booth because he has had enough of seeing Sherry and her shenanigans and decides to chase her around rings, ringside. She's kind of backing up, but Piper all of a sudden stops at the side of the ring and like, hmm, and looks under. And you're used to seeing stuff like a sledgehammer where you wonder, okay, why is this stuff there? But there is a broom, which makes sense because you got to sweep the ring in case somebody throws garbage in, you know, stuff like that. Piper takes this broom with, you know, the bristles and all that and decides to put it between his legs a la a witch and chase after Sherry, who runs towards the back. It's some actually some pretty funny stuff. But first, he actually smacks Sherry on the keister with the bristles of the broom. Not the only time that Sherry would get hit in the ass that weekend on WWF television because this is the same weekend, and I alluded to it towards the beginning of this show, where Andre the Giant is propositioned by various heel managers of the WWF. And it was Sherry's turn that weekend on Superstars where 
she's kind of hitting on him and andre does the big wide eyes like she's gonna give him a blow job a la the warrior at rumble 91 but not quite because andre decides to bend her over the bar this is a legitimate thing that happened bends her over the bar spits into his hand and starts smacking her on the ass as he toasts with arnold skoland immediately after don't think it's going to hurt her not because she's a woman's champion but because she's definitely into rough trade i mean that's something i think we're learning about sensational sherry just kind of in retrospect and you know she could probably take a bristle to the butt you know whatever it's dibiase now goes after piper in the aisle way but the hitman inexplicably gets out of the ring because he's not going to take a countout victory goes after the million dollar man in the aisle and they meet and brawl for a little bit and we're going to have a double countout this was a good match while it lasted and it is kind of like the last singles match that bret hart had on saturday night's main event which was against the macho man randy savage in november of 1987 granted brett just lost the tag titles still part of the hart foundation team but maybe a mind towards pushing him as a single and he looked really good in that match and in this one he looked really good as well sometimes you've just got to go for it why don't you try knocking me down let's do it sylvester stallone rocky five now on laser disc and video cassette Back in the 2005 MLB playoffs, the Angels were playing the Yankees in the division series, and the little graphic that came up for Sean Figgins when he came up to the plate for the Angels said, favorite movie, Rocky Five," And I just remember that being really weird. And I was like, did that actually happen? And I looked it up, and yes, it was confirmed by the Baseball Prospectus website. People who change their sex to have sex with the same sex, Nick Donahue. I think the woman doing the Donahue voiceovers for the next episode was like, I want to see how many times I can say sex in an eight-second spot. (laughs) I think she said it three times, so pretty good job by her. So up next, our final bout, the heel microwave segment, where where we got to quickly heat up somebody who maybe needs a little extra oomph for a feud that's coming up. A match brought to you by the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was being negotiated in 1991. Tito Santana of Tocula, Mexico, which does not exist because there's a Toluca, Mexico, but he's really from Texas and New Jersey, facing off against the Mountie 
or as he was known in Canada, Jacques Rougeau, because they couldn't you call him the Mountie, because they don't have a sense of humor about their police force. But in fact, that might actually be a good thing. So this is a rematch of WrestleMania Seven, where they they had about a minute thirty to just get their thing in, and it was just a cattle prod to Tito really quickly to the gut that ended that one. I think it was right before the main event. And Tito here gets off to a hot start with a mild cheap shot off of a clean break, probably because he knows who he's dealing with. And Santana ends up in trouble outside the ring, but does quickly turn the tide. And he's been in all the WrestleManias, Vince McMahon says, a rare allusion to history dating back. I mean, yes, the history of Vince Jr.'s WWF seems to start with Hogan winning the title in 84 and everything is disregarded before then. But it's not like they would refer to stuff even two years before on a regular basis unless it served a specific purpose like, oh, Tito is a former tag team champion and a former Intercontinental champion. For the first seven WrestleManias, Tito, I think, is only joined by Hulk Hogan and Greg Valentine as being involved in every single one of them. Tito goes for a monkey flip out of the corner, but the Mountie apparently had the emergency brakes on, or really on his horse or whatever. So Tito ends up on his back, and a half Nelson by the Mountie over to the corner sends Tito's head to the buckle five times. Now, with him on the mat, Mountie, and this is one of those wrestling things that just bothers me, when a dude goes for a splash that never does a splash, because you know he's just going to get knees, and that's what happens to the Mountie here. Flying forearm by Tito Santana. So you can tell that they're kind of rushing to some sort of finish and resolution here, as he goes for a pinfall, but Jimmy Hart has trouble getting through the ropes, getting into the ring. I don't know if this is like with the Nasty Boys being late on the save earlier, if that was some sort of screw-up, but everything just kind of stops for a second. Jimmy Hart drops the cattle prod when he is hit with the flying forearm by Tito, and this allows the Mountie to grab it, and instead of using it on Tito's stomach as he did at WrestleMania, he goes right for the throat, literally, and we get the... <laughs> the, the completely ridiculous but something that I accept the premise on sound effect for the Mounties cattle prod. This kind of made me curious about cattle prods. Like, can I actually buy one? And yes, you can purchase one on Amazon.com using Prime Shipping. It costs anywhere from like $70 all the way up to $1,200 if you want to get a really good one. Now, for people trying to move cattle, I think there are better ways to do it. There are more modern techniques like electric fence. That way, the livestock doesn't associate you with, you know, certain pain. And a cattle prod itself shouldn't be strong enough to actually drop a person. Cattle prod delivers enough of a jolt to be painful, but not enough to stun. This is just some information that I'm reading on the topic. That being said, the arc of a cattle prod can still burn human flesh, and they have been quite successfully used as torture devices. So I guess that would be why that maybe the Royal Canadian Mounted Police didn't want to be associated with Jacques Rougeau in this Mountie gimmick. So maybe I do understand, but the Macho Man and Vince, they have a good exchange about whether something should be done by the president of the World Wrestling Federation about this. This, of course, can be moving reviewed by President Jack 
know it's all in good fun and that Tony probably actually was sleeping because it was 12.50 at night when this would have aired, but to insult him like that probably isn't going to make him well disposed for when the Macho Man comes crawling back four or five months from now asking to be reinstated. No wonder why Tony was so obstinate in, in the face of all those requests to reinstate the Macho Man. Subway's cold cut combo. It starts with the foundation of the freshest bread anywhere. Baked every four hours in every Subway store. Then cheese, three kinds of meat, and whichever of our nine tasty fixings you choose. Total construction cost, a buck sixty-nine. It's time to eat. Subway six-inch cold-cut combo for a buck sixty-nine. We can build one for you. Went to a wedding in 2005 down in Georgia, and as I sat down waiting for the ceremony to start, a man sat down next to me who just happened to be Fred DeLuca, the founder of Subway Restaurants, who is, I think, ranked, who is ranked number 200 and something out of the 400 richest Americans, worth over a billion dollars. And at the time, he and I together were worth a billion and a thousand dollars. If you order a suit designed around the way you're built, you have to wait about two months. If you want a house designed around the way you live, the wait is two years. But if what you desire is a car designed around the way you drive, you don't have to wait another day. The 1991 Acura Legend Coupe. Ladies and gentlemen, a fully edible Acura cake! Whoa! Acura? Well, I wanted a Ferrari! That South Park episode, Forever Colors, how I look at Acuras, all I can ever think of is the edible Acura cake that Satan got in place of the Ferrari. The whole thing was parodying that Sweet 16 show that I think was on MTV. So we go back now, and we're going to do some interviews to close this thing out. And Sergeant Slaughter makes a movie reference and gets a little gross. Hulk Hogan, I recall seeing your face on fire, smelling your skin. Oh, how we love the smell of napalm in the morning. Now that's from the movie Apocalypse Now, which the 40th anniversary of its release in the United States is coming up a little bit later this month. Uh, the line is said by Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore, who's played by Robert Duvall. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like... Victory. Apocalypse Now is kind of like part comedy, part, you know, absolute horror story, which, I don't know, I guess it ties into wrestling a little bit. At the very least, it might apply to this particular era of Sergeant Slaughter, where he just doesn't give a crap about anything, and you also have the comedic element of General Adnan and his, you know, very stiff kicks, and Colonel Mustafa now portraying an Iraqi after saying Iran number one for, like, years and years. So we're going to get... A rebuttal from Hulk Hogan, who's with Rowdy Roddy Piper. And I don't know what he, he how he wants this war to end, but it would certainly be different. And especially Sergeant Slaughter needs to realize is that when you started the war, brother, I was going to take it all the way till the end until I completely wiped out Sergeant Slaughter, my allies, my friends, my Hulkamaniacs, the type of crimes you've committed against mankind. You should realize that I'm going to be in your face each and every step of the way. Yes, but wait, wait a second. Most folks 
are saying that this son of an unnamed goat hasn't even brought out the heavy artillery. He's just beginning to burn. Well, you know, Roddy Piper, what you got to realize is as he torched the poster, as he torched the Hulkamania banner, brother, all he did was put more fuel on the fire, man. Gave me more ammunition to fight this thing all the way to the end, man. And as far as you ruling, Sergeant Slaughter, when you started the war with each and every one of my Hulkamaniacs, you don't even rule your own destiny now, brother. It's in my hands. What you don't realize is this is the holster of the 90s, brother. I've got secret weapons. I've got the heavy artillery. And Sergeant Slaughter, with Hulk Hogan, my Hulkamaniacs, God and my country, there will be no unconditional surrender. No prisoners of war. I'm taking you out. I'm going to beat you and wipe you off the face of the earth. What you gonna do, Slaughter? So few just seems to be a proxy for expressing the viewpoint of, well, the U.S. should have invaded Iraq in 1991 and taken out Saddam Hussein at that point. But that doesn't gonna, it's not gonna change anything later on because it still would have emboldened Iran in 1991 just as it did in 2003. Like, did you ever notice Ahmadinejad, when he comes to power in Iran, all of a sudden starts mouthing off the second that Iraq, Iran is, I mean, Iraq is destabilized. Why do they have to have two countries next to each other that start with the same three letters and only have four letters? I don't know. It's, that's colonialism for you. So we got an extendo ad break before we get to the final wrap up with Vince and the Macho Man. An ad for the Reebok Pump Shoes. Now, back in the day, I asked for those shoes and looked on as my mother and sister were horrified when I asked for pumps. And they thought it was something different, but I meant the Reebok pumps. Pringles, which come in that tennis ball can. And I had asked this a couple of weeks ago, and I now have an answer on this. Why tennis balls come in those Pringles-like cans? And apparently, tennis balls are filled with gas, like nitrogen, but they are not perfectly sealed. They are put in a vacuum-sealed airtight container to prevent gas from leaking before they are used. There are pressurized tennis balls and depressurized balls. So I don't want to get into a whole discussion on different kinds of balls, but, uh, you know. STP Cleaner, a movie, A Kiss Before Dying, by that starred Matt Dillon. Not one that I've ever seen and not one that I ever want to see. You get Purina, the dog food that they're focused on, and the Wendy's ad again, and then the quick wrap up before they actually get to their final words that you would hear from the wwf on nbc blockbuster video telling you to come on down and rent the movie flatliners uh, i always like when blockbuster would tell you about specific movies like well no shit it was a big hit in the theaters of course you're going to have that available miller genuine draft yet again and i, I gotta play this the nbc4 thing about the restaurants again lately news boys ralph penza has been turning up at restaurants all over town i don't want the camera you don't want the camera in here but the service isn't always what it should be i don't want them to come up. you think they're hiding something you don't have anything to hide right and you'd be right watch what you eat it's like playing with a loaded gun chill fever abdominal pain finally to pass in just blood eat drink and be Wary, a special news for undercover report Monday at 6 and 11. I really felt that I was in danger of dying. Boy, they were geared up for the start of the May sweeps period with that kind of report with the sinister voice talking about eat, drink, and be wary. Ralph Penza was with NBC4 in New York for a very long time. He passed away in 2007, it says, due to an undisclosed illness. I don't think it was a restaurant in New York City, though. So we go to Vince McMahon and the Macho Man Randy Savage. 
as they close out this run on NBC for the World Wrestling Federation. And what are the final things that they will say? Well, did you have a good time tonight, Macho Man? I had a great time. How about you? I had a wonderful time. Wow, a good time was had by all. By the way, nice hat. Is that a compliment or what? And you know what? It matches the rest of your outfit. Yeah, it does. I did it myself. Yeah. I bet you did. I'm say goodbye. Yeah, say goodbye. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Probably for the best that Savage said, oh, no, because if he had said, oh, yeah, one more time, I think the Kool-Aid man would have come through and he would have destroyed the broadcast booth, which was fine because that was going to be it until Fox would pick up the show for February 1992, which I covered back in episode 39 in the archives. So do check that one out. And that is a wrap for Saturday Night's Main Event for April 27th, 1991. Elsewhere in podcast land, the Sportscasters, it's Steve Bennett, returns with a distinct NFL flavor as the season is creeping up upon us. With Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders, along with Michael Fabiano, who does fantasy football analysis for NFL.com. And on the Our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Marana and Michael Quinn, they have a conversation with the Michael Corleone of wrestling footage, Mr. Richard Land just kind of talking about how he's accumulated this footage through the years. I'm sure it was all above board. I mean, I don't think he had everything done so that he could get all that footage while he was at a baptism or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that. I am saying that he is one of the heads of the five families of wrestling footage. And on the wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett and Ring of Honor's own Brawler Malonis has got some wrestling figure talk with Sean Burke. No, not the former Hartford Whalers and New Jersey Devils goaltender, but from Chaotic Wrestling, who wrestled in the opener of the first live wrestling show that I went to in like 15 years back, I think it was 2014 or 2015. It was against Adam Booker. So both of those guys hold a special place in my heart. So do check out those podcasts. As for me next week, I don't know what show I'm going to do next because I'm I, still trying to get a feel for where I want to go with the next show, whether it be a WCW or even another WWF show. be the third straight one, I think. But I don't know. I'll figure something out between now and then. Do stay tuned to social media. Probably the Twitter is the best place, at GF Allentown Pod. But if you could do me a favor, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Music, and leave a five-star review. That is definitely always appreciated because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this podcast. I should say I was looking at kind of a weird show from the 2010s of all decades that I may actually do. I I told one person about it, and I don't know. It would probably just be a pretty quick thing, and it only came to my attention because there's a certain wrestler named Mr. William Regal who is on the docket, so maybe I'll do something like that. It would actually be probably more like a half show because of the way it's designed. But anyway, maybe giving away too much here. Do tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. <laughs>